okay, we haven't been down under for a while, uh, and I'm really pleased to say we are about to put that right. Um, somebody said to me, I bet you're 50 bucks you can't get Mike Whitney. Uh, someone owes me 50 bucks because all the way from Sydney, here is man himself. <laughs> 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 that's, a good, that's, that's a great start. Dazzler, you've won, you've won 50 by having me on the show. Beautiful. No, when I finally get back to England, you owe, you owe me a pint when I get to England, mate. Have you got 50 in the pocket? <laughs> with pleasure. With pleasure. So, so how's life in Sydney? What's going on? Mate, to be honest with you, I'm in lockdown at the moment. We've been locked down for a month and we've got another month to go. Um, COVID's raised its head again in Sydney. Um yeah, look, there's there's a lot of people that have got it. There's, you know, with all due respect to the people who have passed away, there's been half a dozen people who have passed away in the last couple of weeks. But as you could imagine, I mean, you you live in the UK. You were nearly locked down for a year. I had a daughter living in the UK last year, and luckily she's been able to get back. But uh, it's all the businesses that just clung on last year, all this sort of stuff. And I've just... Actually, in a cricket sense, just had a, a discussion with some people at Cricket New South Wales uh, about maybe there's going to be a staggered start to our club cricket this year, which we had last year. We had first and second grade start, and then a month later, the lower grade started because no one knew what was going on, whether the ground's going to be available, were people going to be able to work, whatever. So we're sort of in a situation like that at the moment, and that's a, a, a bit strange, not being just able to go out, you know, you walk into a shop, you've got to have a mask on. A lot of people getting vaccinated at the moment. A lot of people are a little bit jittery about it and worried. There's a little bit of anxiety in society. As you can expect, it's a weird thing and it's been going on now for 18 months. And to be honest with you, Darren, I thought we'd be, the world would be over it by now. We'd be through it, but that's not the case. And we're just sort of doing our best. So, yeah, it's been pretty weird and even with the cricket in the last 12 or 18 months, watching the boys play without crowds there. The Olympics going on at the moment without crowds there is, is very, very strange. So I hope it all passes by our summer because we've got the Ashes on this year and, you know, we, we want the boys to come out and play. Uh, what's the feeling about the Ashes? There's a, a few people here starting to say, um, you know, to, to question whether it's going to go ahead or whether players are going to travel. Um, what's the feeling uh, locally? Those questions are being raised now. I mean, look, this is the worst that Sydney's been. Melbourne's just come out of a lockdown. I have another daughter who lives in Melbourne. South Australia, Western Australia, Queensland are not too bad. So I would expect that there's still problems when it's going to go ahead. And if Sydney was still in a lockdown, they'd just move the Sydney test to somewhere else and, and it wouldn't be played here. So I think we've got the options to do that. But, mate, everybody's very, very keen to see some good cricket played and, and particularly the Ashes, mate. This is the ultimate, you know. <laughs> I mean, God, I know for you, for me, for anyone that even has got the most the most passing interest in cricket, the Ashes is, to me, the biggest thing. I love it. I love the the battle, the competition. Just, it's, it's the thing I look forward to, I think, more than anything, really. If you and I got really lucky, my first two tests, I pulled out of obscurity back in 1981 and played in both Ashes. And you don't realise it at the time, but like I'm part of the Ashes Club. I played two Ashes tests. And that's, even though there's a fair few guys that have played in the Ashes over the years, that's a really exclusive club to be in. You know, they sort of, yeah, you've you played in the Ashes <laughs> tests. And yeah, it's just a, 
a fantastic thing to be able to say. And, and for me to be able to say that I got pulled out of obscurity and played in Botham's Ashes, most of those guys that were playing then were heroes of mine. I mean, I just could not believe that Jeff Boycott was playing in that series and Bob Willis and Ian, you know, David Gow and Mike Gatting, all these guys were just heroes of mine. So it was, was pretty bizarre and, uh, yeah, great memories. Nearly 40 years ago, Darren. It is 40 years ago. I know. I've, I've been doing a bit of research and uh, you mentioned Gower. He was your first victim, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. He was such a great player to David at the time and, you know, he was in... He was in good form at the time and uh, just so elegant and, and could just punish you without... It looked like he was just selling peas sometimes, David. Yeah, he was just so elegant. So that was a really big moment for me, yeah. He dropped the over before by Graham Wood at first slip and he went to sort of take the ball like that and it burst through and hit him in the mouth. So I thought, no! And then I thought, and then I thought, He's a bloody Western Australian, and I'm from New South Wales, and he's dropped it on purpose. <laughs> but he didn't. He didn't. But he had to go off. So that was in, like, my first over. Second over. Second over, I think it was. And we, he's, he's walking off because he's got a split mouth, and he's chopped the cat. And I'm like, what's going on? But the next over, I got him caught by Graham Yallop in the gully. And it was, mate, that's your first test weekend. And it was David Gower, I mean, at the time. And now he's one of the best players that England's ever produced. So it was, yeah. uh, it was monu monumental, yeah. He's been on the show. He's, uh, yeah, incredible. And, uh, yeah, what a, what a, as you say, at the time, I mean, that team was full of guys that were at the top of their game. Um, but I'm interested in your story because it's a real fairy tale story because um, there you are in Fleetwood, you know, you're a young Aussie guy, you come up and uh, doing what a lot of young Aussies do, come and play some cricket in England, play club cricket. You're at Fleetwood, you played a couple of games for Gloucester. Uh, and then the phone rings, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, uh, I was sitting on the balcony at Cheltenham, and I was playing this game for Gloucester. And I was still playing for Fleetwood on the weekends. But if when I was available from them midweek or a, a Sunday John Player League game, they released me. And I went to play, and it was just so wonderful of Fleetwood Cricket Club, a club in the Northern League in Lancashire to give me that opportunity. But uh, we're playing against Hampshire. They had uh, Gordon Greenwich and Malcolm Marshall in their team. So whether we batted or bowled, it was going to be fun. But we were batting, and I remember Malcolm just running in like, you know, he was just at the top of his game as well and, and continued for another 10 years. He was very special. But the room attendant bought a phone out and said, oh, you know, Mr. Whitney, you want it on the phone? <laughs> So I sort of picked it up and there was this voice went, you're being selected for the test match tomorrow. And I thought it was a mate of mine ringing up. So I told the bloke to, <laughs> you know, I'm going to go out and face Malcolm Marshall in a minute and hung it up. And, and then he rang back and he said, this is Fred Bennett, the manager of the Australian cricket team. And I'd met Fred. He was a, a Sydney fella, but oh, he went leave the ground now and come up to the Grand Hotel in Manchester and I'll be in room 251 or whatever it was and come straight up and see me. And you've been added to the Australian squad because I knew I'd heard on the radio that Jeff Lawson and Rodney Hogg were both injured and they were thinking about taking a three-pronged pace attack into this test series and really the only two fit quicks they had were Lillian Alderman. So I drive up to Manchester from Cheltenham and I Go and knock on the door and I open the door and there's Fred Bennett and Kim Hughes, 
captain sitting on the chair and uh, they said, you're going to play tomorrow. You're in the side. We've got enough people to carry the drinks and grab your gear and take it up to the room and then we'll see you downstairs in an hour's time for the press conference to announce that you've been added to the team for tomorrow. And I remember this clearly, Darren. I went and got my gear and the, the, the guy, the porter downstairs, helped me take it up to this room and I said, thanks very much, and walked in. And in those days, you roomed with people. You didn't get your own room. And I'm looking around the room and there was this, there's junk, there's stuff everywhere, cricket gear everywhere. There's this beautiful leather suitcase in the corner and I walked over and looked at it and embossed old letters on top of it, DK Lily. Oh. And I thought, no, they haven't roomed me with, and they, they did. And I'd only met Dennis once. I was 12th man in a game, that chill game that he'd played the year before. And he walked in about 10 minutes later and I stood to attend and made like this. I didn't know what to do. I was just, you know, this is the god of fast bowling at the time. Yeah. And I roomed with him during that first test match and what a, and he was so fantastic. He was so cool. He helped me so much. He really, really lifted the wing and took me under the wing. And the next day, uh, we bowled. The next morning, the first morning of the game, we bowled. So it was to the ground, warm up, the toss, we're bowling. And Terry Alderman opened the bowling, you know, boycott and tabaret, you know, in there. And then I come on. It was Surreal, absolutely surreal, and a chocker block, Old Trafford, chocker block, and I'm playing at Fleetwood, so half of Fleetwood have come down for the opening day because I rang them and said, I'm playing. Like, I'm in the 11, I'm not 12, I'm playing. So half of Fleetwood have come down, they all got on the drink, and then I got a couple of wickets, and it was, it was magic, mate. And it's nearly 40 years ago. It's 40 years ago on the 13th of August. Oh, Oh, incredible. I mean, just to hear you mention those names. Incredible. I mean, you must have been pinching yourself. I mean, I can't, I can't even imagine being in that situation. It was, you know, Alan Knott, Keeping, John Embry, <laughs> Bowling. I mean, it was, it was, it was surreal. It was, it was that surreal. And look, I got to stay with the team and we played a couple of first-class matches. We played a one-dayer at Leicestershire. We played a three-dayer at Hove against Sussex. And then we were back to play the sixth test at the Oval, which I played in. And then for some reason, there was a day-night one-dayer against Gloucester, which had already been planned. So I went down for that, and I played against Gloucester, fought Gloucester against Australia in that match. And then they went home. And I got back to Fleetwood, <laughs> and there were signs across the road in Fleetwood, welcome home, Mike. <laughs> because they were just, they, they're still my dear friends at Fleetwood. And a lot of the people in Fleetwood have said this to me, you put bloody Fleetwood on map, lad. <laughs> because they reckon no one knew where Fleetwood was. They knew where Blackpool was, but you know, Fleetwood's up the road, a little fishing village, and uh, uh, it changed. You know, and that changed my life forever. And um, it cemented friendships in England because I had that experience there that I still have forty years down the track. It's just such a beautiful thing. And just to continue what you said, yeah, I couldn't believe I was even. In, in the company of these cricketers, let alone out there. Rodney Marsh played. <laughs> I mean, I could just go on and on and on about it. It was so bizarre, mate. And, and here I was in the dressing room having a beer and, and half 
half of them were smoking like they did in the old days. Yeah, and yeah. Beefy had come in with, you know, beer and then, <laughs> and everybody was together. And then the next day you're out there sort of, you know, battling it out again. It was just a wonderful time to, to play cricket. And all through those 80s and early 90s when I played, it was a fantastic time. We seemed to be a little more freer. There was no social media or cameras or phones or anything like that, mate. It was just a different time. Yeah, um, I mean, uh, there's a story about that series about um, all the Aussies being invited up to Beefy's um, farm to go and uh, have a barbecue, and it ends up at three in the morning with a game of rugby going on on the... On the- <laughs> <laughs> See, those things happen in those days, mate. The teams got together on, on the rest day and stuff like that, and I, I maybe because, you know, there's so much T20 now, and, you know, I remember there'd be maybe a season or a season and a half would go by maybe two two years and you wouldn't necessarily see that person. And then they'd come out here on an England tour or the West Indies had come and you'd played in the same league as this guy and now he's made the West Indies tour. But you wouldn't have seen him for two years. These guys see each other all the time now and they're playing the IPL. You're playing, you know, Cole versus Smith in a test series. And then three weeks later, they're playing in the same team in the IPL. They spend six weeks together. They win the comp and then they go off and they play somewhere else. And so it's it's dramatically changed in that aspect. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about watching the football the other week. That When we were kids, when you watched the World Cup, um, or even up with cricket with the Ashes, you were playing guys that, you, that were kind of like um, mystery characters. Like in the football, yeah. you were playing Brazil or you're playing Italy or whatever. Uh, and in cricket, when you're playing Australia, you're playing New Zealand, these are guys that you've never seen before. But you see now, in all sports, because everyone plays together, yeah. like you say, then that, that there's a kind of a the magic has gone a little bit to me, the mystery. Yeah, it's, it's it's certainly changed in that aspect, and there's so much sport on. And for cricket, you know, with the advent of T20, you can go and play in what eight, six, eight, or ten tournaments around the world, and not play any other cricket yeah. if you want to, if that's the way you want to go. And and then there's other tournaments going on and they're playing around the world and they play so much more cricket now than what I did when I was playing. So, yeah, they, there's, you see, but I don't know whether I would have wanted to see some of those guys more often. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly the West Indian fast bowlers. Jesus, they were good blokes, but, mate, that was scary. Right through my whole career. Does that, mate? It was a wonderful That, for me, was a wonderful time for cricket in the early 80s. Um you know, that Australian team you were part of, the England team, you know, the Windies, incredible. I mean, you know, it wasn't just the bowling, but the batting. Uh, you know, um, Beefy tells a story about spending all morning trying to get out Greenwich or Haynes. And eventually you do that and then you celebrate it thinking, yes, we've got a wicket. And then you turn around and look at the pavilion steps and there's King Viv strutting down, chewing his gum. <laughs> you know, everyone, everyone, you know, Kiwis had Richard Hadley and... Uh, and that Crow- was it, and- Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Martin Crow was special. Yeah. Very special. Richard, special. But that was right, you know. Viv, Viv would come in after that. And even if you got Viv out early, oh, you look up and there's Richie Rich coming out the <laughs> gate. And after that, it's Carl Hooper and Gus Logie. And, and then when you think you got him, Dujon walks out and he averages 40-something in test cricket, I mean. And then Malcolm would come out and he'd get some runs as well. And I was... One they were just, they were almost 
mate, almost perfect. You know, through some of those years, they were almost perfect, so hard to beat, so athletic. The fast bowling was so skillful. I mean, they weren't only quick, they were really skillful. And then you had guys like Viv, and, you know, Beefy could do this, Adam Gilchrist could do this. There's not too many players that can go out and maybe be under pressure, and in half an hour, they've absorbed that pressure, then they start turning it on you, and within an hour, they've flipped the pressure around so it's on you, and in another hour, you're under severe pressure because they've just cut loose. That was Viv Richards. Unbelievable. Mate, I'm happy to sit back now. All these years later, yeah, played against him. <laughs> unbelievable to think I played test cricket and one-day cricket against this and got him out a couple of times too. <laughs> <laughs> Unreal, mate. Unreal. It's just a thought just crossed my mind, actually. I know you like your music and you play in a band. You ever thought of calling it, uh, you do covers and stuff. What a great name, Fleetwood yeah. Mike. <laughs> I'll have to mention that to the boys. I don't know how that'll go down. <laughs> you can have that. You can have that. <laughs> I love it, Dad. Thank you. You don't owe me a pint now. It's all right. <laughs> so let's talk about post-cricket because um, our Aussie listeners will know Mike Whitney for all kinds of things, but um, for maybe some of our international guys um, who, who know you from cricket, but that's only half the story. Um, and then... It, is it true another phone call comes through when you yeah you've you hung your boots up and uh, you're moving into this TV career and um, you know Gladiators Who Dares Wins Sydney Weekender I mean mm. incredible career like 27 years that Sydney Weekender has been going yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> how did, how did I know that it's been unbelievable I think if I think back about it now I was doing a hell of a lot of after dinner speaking. And I actually started a, a promotions and marketing company with some other partners immediately after I retired, within a month. So I sort of retired February 1994, about March, April. I've got an invitation to be part of this company. Uh, they had a motor racing series. They were managing Michael Slater uh, and another girl called Zoe Goss, who was in the Australian women's team at the time, and a few other projects going ahead. So I, I got in with those guys, but I was doing a lot of speaking and... Um, I spoke at this function and the next day in the office of the promotions and marketing company, my phone rang and I picked it up and there was this guy from the ABC, which is like the BBC in England. Yeah. And he said, I produced these television shows and I saw you speak. I saw you speak at this function and I thought you were hilarious and really good. And the guy that was going to host this TV show can't do it anymore. So would you like to host this TV show? And I went, well, mate, I'm, I've just started a promotions and marketing company. I just, can't walk away. Mate, two hours later, he walked in the office, that guy, and sat down. And so when he left, my two partners said, oh, was that sponsorship or what was it? I went, no, it was a guy that wants me to host a television show for him. And they said, why don't you go and do it and try it out? So I went and did this show called Great Ideas on the ABC. Did 13 episodes. It was all over within two months. And then it went to air. On the back of that, a guy I used to play cricket against called Chris Chapman was running the seven network in Sydney. And he saw me on that ABC show. And then Chapo rang me up and said, why don't you come out to channel seven? Because most cricketers retire and go and work for channel nine because they had the cricket at the time. So I went out to see Chris. He said, we've done 
13 episodes of this show called Sydney Weekender. This was 1990. And if you want to start on January the 1st, 1995, you can learn the rope by doing this show, Sydney Weekender. So I went okay and I signed a three-year deal with them. And within three months, Gladiators had arrived in Australia uh, and I was asked to be the referee of that. And very soon after that, a couple of English guys who were living in Australia came up with the concept of who dares win. And they wanted me to be the host of that as well. So within like four months of starting at Channel 7, I was doing Sydney Weekender, which is a state-based show, 5.30 Sunday afternoon, Who Dares Wins and Gladiators, which were prime time, prime time massive shows. So for the people that only knew me from cricket, all of a sudden there was this other audience that started to know me from, from television and it's pretty much been like that for the last 30 years. And I'm still at Channel 7. I've been there 27 years now. And um, they've been very gracious and I've had a fantastic time. Yep. No complaints at all, mate. So in the UK, um, we all know about Gladiators and it's kind of like a, a cult show. It's not it's not running anymore, but um, Who Dares Wins? I've uh, I've done a bit of research and looked on, on, on YouTube. Uh, and uh, make sure you say hello to Tanya when you see her next time. <laughs> she still looks... She still looks fantastic. Don't worry about that. <laughs> um, just explain to her, to our viewers and listeners, um, the whole thing about who dares because it's a some of the stuff I've seen is just wild. Um, but uh, just tell us about the show. It is wild, Dazzler. I don't think we'd be able to make this show like that here in Australia now, no. uh, just for the insurance levels <laughs> and stuff like that. But these two guys, David Mason and Adrian Brand, who had worked together in London and had both come to live in Australia at different times and got together again and got their creative juices going on uh, Long Reef Golf Course in Sydney. Because they asked them, how did you think this show up? And they came up with this idea. See, in Australia, you know, and probably didn't tell you, was, when I was little, it was, I'll dare you to do that. I dare you. I dare you. And the, the dare thing was pretty big when I was a kid. So they come up with this idea to dare people to do things on camera and a small dare was like 50 bucks. So what was a small dare? That or eat a live earthworm for 50 bucks or a chilli that we know was going to burn the guy's mouth out and he's not allowed to spit the chilli out in 30 seconds or something like that. So they were small dares. That was called a street dare. Then there was a mini dare, which was a little bit more more risky, Um and that could have been for three or four or 500 bucks. And then at the end of the show, there was the main dare. And if you, if you completed the main dare, you got a free holiday around the world. And the main dare was reliant on people writing letters in to say, my husband's a great bloke and me and my kids love him. He works so hard, but he definitely needs something in his life to put a rocket up his ass, basically. Yeah. And in, in the end, Darren, our show was that popular that we were getting like 15,000 letters a week. Wow. For like one contestant for the main dare for show. So the girls would go through these letters and we'd find these people. And if it was you, for example, I'd be sneaking in behind you right now without you knowing with a camera crew and grabbing you on the shoulders and going, Dazzler, Mike Whitney from Who Dares Wins. We've all Organised with your boss and your family, you've got to come with me right now. And then we, we took them somewhere and we put them up in a helicopter or whatever there. We found out what their main fears were. 
And then we said, away you go, champion. It's up to you. And if they didn't do it, Tanya and I had to have a go at it, which was pretty scary, bro. I'm telling you, something was really scary. And if we didn't succeed after having a go or said, no, I'm not doing that, a stuntman then did it to actually show that it could be done. Yeah, the show... The show went for about three and a half years. Um, and then because of insurance problems in Australia, uh, one big insurance company over here collapsed. So around 2000, something like that, or the late 90s. And the bottom line then, it just wasn't profitable. So those guys took that show, like the seven or eight countries around the world, and it was a huge hit. And it was one of the first reality TV shows ever. Yeah, and I guess it works because it's kind of uh, the man in the street and unsuspecting people. Um I don't think it would work if you got tough guys on or, um, I mean, I'm sure you probably did get applications from people. I can do that. Yeah. Go on, bring it on. Uh, But it doesn't work so well with that, does it? I used to get pulled up on the street a lot when we're making the shows and guys would say, Oh mate, I'm in the army and I'm SAS and I'll do any dare on the show. And I'd have to say to them, Hey brother, we don't want you on the show. (laughs) We want the bloke who lives three doors down the road from me who's just a normal bloke and his wife's written in. And and a lot of the letters would say this too, Darren, which you've got to laugh. A lot of the letters would say, my husband watches the show every week and tells our children that he'd do any dare on the show. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, they were pumping up their own socks. And when I'd put my hand on their shoulders and they'd turn around and see me with who dares wins and the crew... and some of it was really testing mate some of it really really tested these people maybe not so much physically but but up here and some of those people went on to write books get on the after dinner speaking circuit some of the people we had on the show was was really crazy yeah oh fantastic and you you still remember when i when I just talked to a couple of my Aussie friends and just said, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have uh, Mike Whitney on the show. Oh, Mike Whitney, legend. Yeah, who dares wins? Make sure you ask him. Make sure you ask him about the woman that made a banana smoothie with her feet by stomping on it and making her friend drink it. <laughs> that was the kind of thing. Stuff like that. <laughs> I used to go into our office, Darren, and they had, they had a whiteboard up on the one, and it would have man feeds shark <laughs> with metal glove on. And I'd read it on the whiteboard and I'd go, what about the rest of his body? He might, might have a metal glove on my hand. That's all right. But it's a shark. So, yeah, and, and yeah, all of this, you know, woman makes banana smoothie with feet and then partner has to drink it. But people would do it, mate. You know, we, we would get back to the office and say, for $50, why would that dude would have possibly done whatever it was? And we realised that it's so trim and it's like, the 30 seconds of fame i'm on the telly and there's people around and we used to get big crowds in the shopping malls cheering these people on yeah and it was like they didn't they didn't want to let the crowd down to eat a sheep's eyeball <laughs> <laughs> it probably gave the idea for i'm a celebrity uh, you know years later but uh, oh, fantastic and and, and sydney yeah. weekend are still going as you say every sunday afternoon 5 30 on uh, on uh, on abc is it or you're in local? No, I said Channel 7, Channel 7. Yeah. Yeah, 7, seven Network, so, which is right across Australia, but we're on 7 Sydney. Um, mate, now that I'm a nearly a 30-year veteran of the television industry, I can say this. If you get a couple of series or a year, two years, five years, 
mate, that's been a huge success. You've made some money. You've paid all your bills. You've done already. You've done good. But Sydney Weekender is in its 28th year this year. And I've been hosting it for 27 years. And shows, unless it's Coronation Street or something like that, (laughs) shows just don't last that long. So it's a real testament to the people that I've worked with who have been running the show because things aren't the same today as what they were 28 years ago. And we've had a couple of different executive producers and as life has changed and social media has come in and people go away on holidays in different ways now and Airbnb and all sorts of things have changed. We've just, you know, morphed and molded with those changes to still be really current. All of the other people that present on the show are really, I'm the oldest by a long way, mate, and they're all really young, fresh, handsome young blokes and beautiful looking girls with a lot of energy and they're all out there presenting our state, New South Wales, which is something like uh, 3 million square miles. I think, I think England fits into, not the UK, but England fits into New South Wales like eight times. Huh. So there's so much to see just in our state and we've never run out of things to do and we've made like 1,150 episodes of the show. Yeah, I thought I was doing well on 98 Night Out on two and a half years um, and still finding stuff every week to talk about from cricket. But who knows, I could be doing my own TV show in uh, in two years' time. <laughs> so tell me then, all right. It's fun, mate. I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, so let's say, right, I'm arriving on a plane tomorrow and I'm, you're meeting me at Sydney Airport. Uh, what, what are you, what, what are we going to do for a weekend? Sell me Sydney for, if I've got the must things to do on a weekend in Sydney, forget about the virus, you know, all bets are off. Dazra and Wits out in Sydney. What are we doing a weekend? Well, being from England, you'd definitely be coming out here in the summer and you'd, because that'd be your winter and you'd definitely want to go down the beach or do something on near the beach or Sydney Harbour, Harbour from fishing and diving to the boat cruise, go sailing. You can go on boats. You can go whale watching at the moment in the middle of our winter. The whales are just jumping off the water in Sydney. But I live a couple of beaches south of Bondi. So, you know, we could spend the morning at Bondi Beach, mate, sitting down there, go for a swim, have a cup of coffee at a beautiful little cafe, go drive down to Botany Bay, have a look at Kernel on the other side, restaurants everywhere. If you want to go up the Blue Mountains, that's a couple of hours drive west. Absolutely sensational. National Park, Indigenous history up there, all sorts of stuff. Hunter Valley as well is only two hours north. That's that's our closest wine district to Sydney. Absolutely beautiful, mate. And if you head south, where my sister lives a couple of hours south down the coast of New South Wales from Sydney, it's almost getting a little bit like England, green rolling hills and cows in the paddock and there's a couple of stone fences down there the beaches are down there are beautiful a lot of national parks as well so yeah i could fill a saturday sunday for you mate no problem <laughs> absolutely uh, mike listen i'm not going to take up much more of your time um really grateful that you took the time to join us and uh, many many thanks for being an absolutely superb guest on 19 around good on you darren thanks mate congratulations with the show mate absolute beauty <laughs>